Private equity groups hurting the U.S. restaurant industry? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Joel Silverstein, President of East-West Hospitality Group and an authority on the industry from an international perspective. Joel specializes in international restaurant development and speaks a lot about the industries outside of the United States. But he also gives an important contrast between the restaurant industry's ownership structures and the amount of leverage restaurant chains operate with in the U.S. and in other markets. Joel discusses the way private equity groups structure their restaurant transactions and how it impacts chains' ability to survive. He also discusses why some restaurant chains have been able to expand easily overseas while others have not. Please have a listen. Okay, I am here with Joel Silverstein. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Joel, why don't you, let's start off just a little bit. Why don't you give people a brief description of, of who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, I've been involved in the restaurant food service sector since 1991. When I joined uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Japan as a board member. And that made me part of the PepsiCo restaurant international senior management at the time. KFC was struggling, was having trouble getting positive sales. It was a thousand unit system in Japan, a billion dollar business, a large market cap on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. So that was my first introduction. PepsiCo stuck me there because I thought I'd learned something about restaurants. And at the time, it was the largest KFC system outside of the U.S., and was doing far better than in the U.S. And so uh, considered to have very high operational standards. I, I'm littered in Japanese, so it was an easy mm -hmm. place for me to park. So that's how I originally learned that business. And then we took on Pizza Hut as a licensee and developed the delivery-only business with them. And then I got involved in Korea, uh, KFC and Pizza Hut as part of PepsiCo. Then I moved back to the U.S. and ran a division of Pizza Hut in the United States, which was a mixture. They were all company-owned stores at the time, but they were a mixture of delivery and old red roofs mm -hmm. in the southeastern part of the United States and in between some other ventures. Fast forward, I became a franchisee of Outback Steakhouse in Japan. They bought a majority of my shares out, and I took over the Asia-Pacific region for Outback, and we developed that business in Asia pretty successfully, mostly as company-owned units. So when I left, we had about 160 outbacks, majority of them owned, Korea being the biggest market. And uh, we had a fairly good presence in Japan and Hong Kong. And I finally left in 2005, moved down to Hong Kong and started my own restaurants. Mm -hmm. And then in 2008, uh, got involved and started up East West Hospitality Group, which is where I am now based in Hong Kong. But because of COVID, I'm rather be in a big house in the U.S. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where I am now next to a golf course and can uh, living in luxury prison, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of us are. Yeah. It's a uh, luxury prison is a good way to put it. So uh, let's start with the U.S. for a minute first, because I know you have views on both the United States and uh, and internationally. Um, but if you look, uh, if we look at the number of number of companies, uh, both franchisees, uh, and brands um, have had problems since the pandemic. Um, a vast majority of those that have had problems uh, really had uh, pretty, um, uh, well, were just leveraged to the hilt. 
And then if you look a little further, uh, they were private equity sponsored. Now, did private equity sort of establish this? I mean, did a would you expect to see more of this because this is so common in the United States where private equity basically just buys up some restaurant company, loads it up with debt, and then just leaves it with no room for error? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, let me just, um, just for your viewers, um, we've been a private equity advisory shop in mm -hmm. Asia since 2008, and we actually got involved in private equity by accident. And it might be interesting to your readers. I, we got a, I got a call one day from a company called Bearing Private Equity, which is the largest private equity fund group in Asia. And they wanted to buy Outback Steakhouse Asia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and since I had run it, they thought I'd be a good advisor to them. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing about private equity back in uh, 2008 and nine. So I got involved with them. I learned the business by being around them. The first thing you learned is the majority of them are finance people running mm -hmm. spreadsheet models. None of them are really detailed in the operation of the business. So we actually ended up not buying it. Uh, Goldman Sachs was the selling agent. They wouldn't accept the offer. The mm -hmm. offer was, very, was a very good offer. And they ended up selling the Outback Korea business many years later for about a third of what we offered. <laughs> so we were, we were lucky that we didn't get involved. But since that time, uh, about half the PE deals in Asia, we've been an advisor to. Mm -hmm. So we know this industry pretty well. The main difference is we can see a huge difference between private equity in uh, emerging markets like Africa, where we've been involved, Russia, where we've been involved in Asia. It's a completely different industry than the United States. And the main reason is the United States is a, it's the old LBO model. Mm -hmm. Limit, limit, you know, I mean, leverage buyouts, load something up with debt, you know, a very marginal room for error. The problem with that, it, it works in very high margin industries. Like if you're in the cigarette industry or the chewing gum industry <laughs> or the soft drink industry, we have massive margins. It makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense in the retail industry or the restaurant industry where you can have negative 10, 15% growth and you're basically breaking even. So right. it's extremely dangerous in certain industries to load up um, retail restaurants, other industries as well, low margin industries with debt. In Asia, nobody, the, uh, I would say the, uh, the lending markets are not as sophisticated if you wanna use that term, mm. but they're much more risk averse. Right. And there's no way you could leverage up a restaurant investment to more than 30 percent mm -hmm. no more because they would think it's crazy right and and re remember the big differences are the united states is a very low growth market yeah it's an over despite what you may say i personally think it's a very oversaturated restaurant market with too many zombie brands mm -hmm. that probably shouldn't exist you know the united states has easy bankruptcy laws in a place like korea if you go bankrupt you could go to jail <laughs> in, in Hong Kong, if a company declares bankruptcy, they put them on a, uh, they put the owners on a budget every day um, and they have to appear in court. It's a very serious matter. In the United mm -hmm. States, it's taken very lightly. You see all these restaurant chains or airlines go bankrupt and come back, go bankrupt again and come back. So that may be good from a, a risk standpoint. But, you know, I mean, I think we're dealing with a lot of uh, lenders that, uh, or you know, limited partners who can't find yield. And all of this goes back really to the zero or negative interest rate environment we're faced with. So mm -hmm. you have pension funds, university endowments, you know, all of the investors in these private equity funds are need yield, 
right? If you're the fireman's union or the police union or the teacher's union, you have pension obligations. You know, mm -hmm. if you're the city of Chicago, you have pension obligations and you're underfunded in most cases. Yeah. So they need, they need yield. And putting their money in short-term treasury bills isn't going to cut it. So they are either looking to the stock market, venture capital, private equity, alternative investments, all those things. So there's way too much money out there in the hands of these private equity funds. Mm -hmm. And when you have too much money and they're kind of forced to do deals, they get very lax. Right. And um, I think the other difference in the United States is um, they view restaurants somehow as cash machines. I've heard this over and over again. Um, I, I think there's very little care for the people who work in the restaurant industry, uh, for the drivers, for the cooks, for the assistant managers. Um, at the end, they're the ones that get screwed the most out of all this. The private equity funds seem to always end up with their money back and, and a little bit, in some cases, big successes. Mm -hmm. But the people who get hurt are all the headquarters people who get fired, the people on the front line. So, in Asia and in Africa, where I've been involved in, it's all about growth. Mm -hmm. It's all about how to grow same-store same sales. Um, it's a different business, um, more disciplined business. But even in Asia, as I'll cover later, uh, the retail industry, the restaurant industry deals that have happened, private equity are sitting on lots of deals they can't exit out of. Really? And, but no one's going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. But it's more because they paid way too much for the assets in the beginning because they just have too much money. Right. You know, and deal teams want to do deals. Right. So one of the things we do is we have been pretty much against almost 80 percent of the deals we've been involved in. And in many cases, the private equity fund walks away. In some cases, they do the deal anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about specific deals, but a lot of the deals we've been involved in, the funds are they've they've already exceeded their terms so they're you know they the um, the fund they're in is already expired and mm -hmm. they're still holding on to stuff right and the investors want them to get the hell out of it but they can't unless in some cases in china for example i've been involved in deals recently where they basically just had to sell at 50 cents on a dollar 60 cents on a dollar just to exit because the funds couldn't stay open any longer Right. You know, they just reached their expiry period. Right. So, so back to the, the U.S., the, the, um, you're saying that, the, that lenders are fueling a lot of this because they, in the United States because they allow these private equity firms to borrow to the hilt. Um, you know, well, to it, it comes down to skin in the game, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm a Nassim Tlaib fan, and how many people have skin in the game? And, um, you know, if these, if these uh, private equity funds can take things into bankruptcy and there's no particular risk for the individuals involved, then they'll go ahead and do it. You know, there, there are a lot of egregious examples of the United States of loading certain restaurant chains down with excessive debt just to get your mm -hmm. dividends back. Right. You know, doing sale leasebacks, get your dividends back um, so that you're completely whole and then take it into bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something most people in the world don't understand. They think it's crazy. And they probably view the lenders, to be honest with you, as being pretty stupid to get involved in this in the beginning. Because, you know, how many times EBITDA are you going to lend to? You mm -hmm. know, so, I mean, you see crazy, you know, uh, loans to EBITDA ratios now in the United States. I mean, even pre-COVID, it was extreme. But now after COVID, of course, if you're in a full service restaurant, a casual dining business, it's a tough slog. 
you right. know, no, matter, no matter what you in, and the, the last thing you want is to load it down with, uh, with debt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except a lot of companies over the last few months have, have leveraged themselves even further. And then you have certainly in the full service sector, you have a lot of companies that really do have an uncertain long-term time horizon um, about, you know, how, you know, when they're going to be able to come back to where they were. If they do, assuming they do come back, you don't know how profitable they're going to be once they do. And then, um, you know, so to me, a lot of this is just end up, they just end up kicking the can down the road and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I've always been amazed at how many two, 300 unit chains there are in the United States. You know, I've never heard of half of them. And when I drive around and see them, I don't even know who they are or what they are. And they're, they tend to be, well, one, one big difference between the United States and Asia is uh, the chains here tend to have uh, facilities are not kept up to the extent they are in Asia. The mm -hmm. expectations of the customers are much lower. The service standards are lower generally. Really? Um, yeah, because people, when they have less money, they have higher expectations for when they spend their money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it is, you know, I would say it is, you know, quite a big difference. But the, I mean, the issue is, it, when does the party stop? Mm -hmm. It's a party. Everybody wants to be part of the party. Everybody wants to lend money at, you know, at, at at these valuations and don't seem to care. I think a, a main reason, I mean, we've been involved in one, I, we were an advisor to one group that, that uh, wanted to buy one of the well-known brands that's in bankruptcy court. Mm -hmm. And we looked at the numbers and we made an offer, which we thought was very fair. And the lenders said we're not qualified because it was lower than they wanted to accept. Mm -hmm. So we basically said, fine, you know, you don't want us to buy it, we'll walk away. So, um, you know, I don't want to get involved in the, that brand specifically, but it'll sit there, you know, think about it. There are certain uh, brands that were very, uh, that still have very good brand awareness, are liked and, you know, have uh, likability scores, which are pretty high, but they've either been mismanaged or the private equity fund is just, you know, given it very, very low margin for error. The, the other point I'd make out, there's some really excellent private equity funds and the yeah. ones that are excellent are the ones that have very good operators as advisors, mm -hmm. and they put operators on the board that are really good. Uh, being a great operator doesn't mean that you were a president of a public chain. It means that you really know how to operate a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> you really, and you really know how to do it properly rather than just fire people and you know, go from linens to paper napkins and all this kind of stuff, which people tend to do when they're, when they're not making any money. But yeah. the ones that are good and have great operators on board uh, provide the value added, but I would mm -hmm. say a significant number of them, and I'm not going to get into names, are just all about financial leverage. Right. You know, it's all a restaurant is just a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. You know, just a model. Yeah, I don't have any problem. I mean, debt in and of itself is not a problem. the The issue to me ends up to be when you put so much debt that you can't really invest behind the brand, and so so many of these brands that you're talking about, these two and three hundred unit concepts a few larger concepts in that, you know, haven't really done anything to get uh, consumer attention or, um, you know, really invest behind their concepts, you know, with effective, you know, remodels or things like that. And then, and then they're sort of, you know, and then once they, of course, they end up hitting problems because the United States restaurant industry is so competitive, you know, and then they end up, you know, making matters worse. And then of course, you know, with the pandemic, it just like pulled the rug out from under a lot of people. 
Yeah, I think the first thing that happens uh, with a, a significant number of PE deals in the US, and I've, I've seen it because I've been involved in, in several of them, is that uh, they stop renovating. Mm -hmm. So they immediately put a stop to all CapEx. Yeah. Um, and that's why if you look in the United States, um, just look at the state of the facilities with right. these franchisees. Mm -hmm. I mean, the state of the facilities, I mean, I, I, we have represented quite a few well-known brands that want to go overseas. And the problem that we face, even though the brands are strong and they've had, uh, you know, well capitalized, the, the overseas potential franchisees comes, looks at the, at the stores in the U.S. and is quite shocked right. at the standard of the facility. Ripped, uh, you know, ripped couches, uh, you know, neon lights that are only half working, <laughs> you know, right. it's just uh, in general, not very attractive facilities. Mm -hmm. And because the facilities are old and they've been bought and sold many times and they're levered, levered with huge debt. And, the, and many of the, uh, of the legacy franchisees don't want to put any money in it mm -hmm. uh, because they've made, they've taken so much cash out of the business that they're just going to wait until it's over, you know, <laughs> until they absolutely have to make, um, you know, small patches. I've been involved in quite a few uh, U.S. chains where they really, I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen restaurants with leak, you know, with when it rains, it leaks through the roof. Right. And it's barely able, you know, I've seen buckets in restaurants, <laughs> which, which you, you would not see in, uh, in most, most markets in Asia Pacific from, you know, from yeah. my experience. So I think that, I mean, in, in Asia, if I can just sure. you know, move to emerging markets, the big difference is these private equity funds in Asia, particularly in emerging markets, they provide a lot more services, meaning corporate governance. They have HR teams at the private equity fund. They've got marketing teams. They've got op operational teams. They normally get a very experienced international restaurant person to sit on the board. Like I sit on a few boards now of deals I've been involved in, where my, my role is really to work with the CEO, the COO, the teams, to give them best practices. So it's all about growing same store sales. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, we expect them in markets up until COVID, which, you know, the, the, these markets were growing six to 8% a year, the f food service market. We want these stores the, at the store level to have same store sales growth at least five to 6%. Mm -hmm. So that's our, our goal. And we're not looking at it by firing people, you know, or uh, telling them not to, you know, not to renovate their facilities. So we're trying to do, um, trying to make a profitable growth. And yeah. the, way, the way the private equity fund exits usually is the valuations are much higher because these uh, restaurants have more units and more absolute profit. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? And the other thing I'd say, the majority of the deals we've been involved in are not franchises. So they're local chains. Yeah. And there's a huge advantage with local chains. Their profitability in general, I'm, I'm excluding KFC in China and these massive successes, but overall, um, local brands that are well-run well locally, they don't pay franchise fees, they don't pay royalties, their store level EBITDA is significantly better than mm -hmm. franchise restaurants. So um, generally, I counsel my private equity clients not to invest in franchises, but mm -hmm. to invest in locally owned businesses that um, have more flexibility um, <clears throat> with strong founders, and that generally tends to get a much higher rate of return for the fund. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, 
do you think that the 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 prevalence of these these local concepts in 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 Asia I mean is that going to make it harder for 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 US brands to grow in those markets or or not Well I mean in in, in if we think about emerging markets I'll just talk about Asia but I can pivot to Africa and Russia and other places but generally um, you have to think about yum when it was when those restaurant brands were owned by PepsiCo and PepsiCo uh, was making had so much free cash flow from Frito-Lay and Pepsi-Cola. Mm-hmm. And they put most of that, um, you know, they didn't need to build too many factories. Uh, so they most of that free cash flow went into growing restaurants. So mm-hmm. um, in Asia, the majority of this growth was joint venture company owned stores that eventually got refranchised. But those kind of days are over. The only people who could have done that were KFC, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, and um, Starbucks. That's it. Mm-hmm. So the majority uh, of those businesses today are dominant. You know, the coffee segment is dominated by Starbucks. There really is no second tier player. Costas, to some extent, coffee bean, to some extent. KFC, there's no real competitor to them. You know, Texas chicken, a little bit. You know, Popeye's almost non existent. McDonald's dominates the burger category. There's some competition from Burger King, but it's not nearly to that extent. Wendy's is almost non-existent. You know, Domino's is the, the dominant uh, company in delivery, although Pizza Hut gives them very strong uh, competition because Pizza Hut has their own uh, Pizza Hut delivery. When you exclude those and then you go to second tier brands, there are not a lot of successes. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, you can have a lot of Wendy's, a lot of Burger Kings, a lot of Culver's, a lot of all sorts of of brands in the burger category or the pizza category or the Mexican category, whatever, that's not the case in emerging markets. There are only a few brands. The other thing I would say, which is very odd about the U.S., is U.S. large restaurant chains like Dine Equity, Darden, Texas Roadhouse, these multi-billion dollar companies don't invest, don't do any M&A internationally. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to market their own brands through franchise arrangements internationally instead of buying good local brands. So the, be- the, the, the company that puts all of these groups to shame is Jollibee. Yeah. Because Jollibee is a Filipino brand. Mm-hmm. They have Jollibee, which is a hamburger brand. And yet they've had the guts and took the risk to buy uh, dumpling chains in China, to, um, you know, to buy uh, into Smashburger in the United States. I think they own a majority now. They yeah. have a deal with Rick Bayless they're doing a lot of very aggressive high risk stuff. Um, and you would, and the reason the U S companies don't do that is because of activist investors, the right. ones that are public don't, you know, so they really cannot get a global footprint mm-hmm. unless they start investing and in buying um, local brands that they can develop. So Jollibee is probably the best example I can think of, of, of a, non-U.S. restaurant company that has really tried to grow their footprint globally mm-hmm. through M&A. You know, right. you, there's no M&A out of Darden, Dine Equity, Texas Roadhouse, Chili, uh, you know, Brinker. Uh, there's, there's none of it. Right. Well, it uh, seems like they're putting themselves almost at a disadvantage by trying to, to build this from the, the ground up in international markets. Um, and, uh, you know, with, you know, and, you know, and, 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 and success is far from guaranteed in that sort of thing. In fact, there are a lot of companies that, you know, I mean, Wendy's and Taco Bell are two that come to mind um, that have really struggled to establish themselves outside of the United States. Um, it's not so easy. No, it's very difficult. 
it's very difficult. And obviously the big international growth machines are Starbucks, Pizza Hut, KFC, and mm-hmm. McDonald's. I mean, th- those are the, the big ones. But remember, most of them got started with investment from the parent company. Mm-hmm. You know, China just didn't happen for Yum. <laughs> KFC was all company-owned stores for many years. McDonald's was all company-owned stores. Starbucks was lucky in, in China because they had two very good franchisees, one in Hong Kong, one in Taiwan. And they invested and built the business and then Starbucks bought them out. So um, all of these companies that are very successful in Asia, <clears throat> they basically took the risk mm-hmm. and invested their own capital. Right. And that was more than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, in some cases, uh, KFC goes back to 1987, 88. So, yeah. so they deserve all the, all the success you know, that I've had. The other thing I'd point out, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if your listeners are interested, but we've done a lot of work in Africa. Mm-hmm. And the, the um, international brands that are franchised in Africa don't do very well. I'm excluding South Africa for a moment, but uh, sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. they don't do very well. The reason is their fees are very high. You know, they're paying 6% royalties, have to reinvest uh, 4 to 6% in marketing. Uh, they have to import a lot of products. So if you look at Subway or KFC, Pizza Hut, Domino's, generally, they're not very successful. Mm-hmm. But local brands are highly successful. You know, we were involved with a brand in Kenya called uh, Java House, which is h- highly profitable, all locally owned and managed. And um, it's kind of a casual dining. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the dominant casual dining brand in Kenya and Uganda. And they have their own commissaries. They make everything themselves from the bread to the hamburgers to bake their own bread because there's no Cisco or U.S. foods in that part of the world. And those are highly profitable businesses. You know, we were involved last year with a fast food chain in Nigeria and um, serving fried chicken and highly profitable with like 40 or 50 units. And, and Nigeria is a huge market of 260 million people. Huh. But, the, but the, the branded franchises aren't doing well. They really struggle because of the, all the fees they have to pay. Mm-hmm. So if you're a private equity investor, um, the deals we've been involved in in Nigeria, Kenya, and Uganda, were all international private equity funds, Africa funds, but they were very, have done very well investing in local well-run mm-hmm. brands. So right. um, my argument generally is to a private equity fund outside the United States is to look for local well-run brands with scalability that aren't uh, mm-hmm. paying franchise fees and royalties. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, my old boss, John Hamburger, used to call the franchise fee, um, uh, what is, almost like it, yeah, he called it, well, he calls it, he used to call it tip a tariff, uh, but, but, you know, also pointed out frequently that, you know, the fee basically just limits the profit, you know, the profit potential on a franchise business. And, uh, you know, makes it, you know, certainly makes it a lot more challenging for the operator to, um, to, to profit off of that restaurant. And, you know, uh, you know, and I mean, especially if you're looking at, at a 6% royalty rate plus a four to 6% marketing fee, I mean, that's like 10 to 12% right off the bat. And you just got to shave that right off. Well, one thing you'll find is the bigger brands, uh, don't charge very high franchise fees. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't charge territory fees. Generally, they're very small. The smaller brands are the ones trying to get big fees. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not, the, the royalties can be prohibited, but the biggest issue is whether those big brands, whether they fit into the local market. You know, Americans have a lot of trouble downsizing footprints. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't think of small kitchens. 
if you're, if you're operating in New York, you can think of small kitchens because the rent is so high. But most international markets have very high rent. Mm-hmm. And they're always looking at using commissary kitchens, bringing food to the store, very small um, back of the houses. Otherwise, they can't get a decent return on their investment. The other thing I'd say is um, regarding tenancy, uh, leases are very short. Mm-hmm. In Asia, they're short. In Africa, they're short. So they don't have you know, 10, 15, 20-year leases. So mm-hmm. they want their cash back within two to three years, or they don't want to do deals. Mm-hmm. So you have to you know, adjust your brand to fit that economic model, or you won't be successful. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I can imagine that's tough and very difficult for a lot of different brands. In fact, it's, it's, it's certainly proved to be difficult in many situations. Well, QSR is, um, it's fairly easy to do, but not, mm-hmm. not casual dining. The other thing I would say is Japanese brands, at least in Asia Pacific, are very strong. You know, Japan has very strong soft, soft power. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Asia, anyway, the most preferred brands are Japanese brands, not Western brands. Really? Yes, because they love Japanese food, they love anime, they love the culture. And, you know, if you exclude the McDonald's, KFC, Pizza Hut, and Starbucks, which are unique and Domino's, which are unique because they've been there for 30, 40 years. Uh, most of the attractive brands in Asia today are Japanese. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, and in, in Kenya and Uganda and places like that, they're British or South African, mm-hmm. other than the big four or five. So, it, you know, it, it depends where, who's colonized you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, histo- historically. You yeah. know, in India, in India, British brands are very popular yeah. for, awesome. for ob- obvious reasons. So. Mm-hmm. So um, how is it, how has the coronavirus sort of changed the outlook for international growth? I think it's, uh, well, I, I, look, it's, it, COVID has, has impacted all retail, all restaurants all over the world. Even in markets like Vietnam, which have virtually no COVID, or mm-hmm. Korea or Japan, which have very minimal COVID, um, you know, epidemics, um, people are staying away from restaurants. So restaurant sales are down, clearly. And the major, even the very good uh, restaurant operating companies are probably losing money to breaking even, and they're just trying to survive in the short term. So most of those really good operating companies are not keen to make further investments in the short term. They're mm-hmm. not willing to put more capital risk to build more stores. What they are looking to do, obviously, is to renegotiate leases. To you know, I think what 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 has happened, which I think is fairly clear, is the retail. The rental environment has changed, mm. and nobody is going to get the same rents they got before. Right. And people are really not excited about opening on the London High Street <laughs> with, with rents like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a talk, um, I think this is an important conversation. I had a talk with one of the best um, US QSR companies by far, you know, top shelf company. Mm-hmm. And I met with the chairman last year, and he asked me, um, he was thinking of going into international, he really hadn't gone. And he said, do I really need stores anymore? That was his question. I said, yes, you need some stores. But he said, well, I'm thinking of going into like Korea or Japan. Um, can I just make do with five stores and 300 cloud kitchens? <laughs> and I said, yes, mm-hmm. you need some stores, you mm-hmm. know, some flagships to plant your flag and have them see that you're there. But going forward, um, you could do it with cloud kitchens. Yeah. You know, you, you definitely could. So I think, you know, commercial real estate is in for a huge awakening, you know, all, all over the world, not just mm-hmm. the United States. Right. So I think that's the trend. 
and brands that lend themselves to being operated well within dark kitchens, uh, deliver well. Um, you know, and I think you know in Asia, delivery is way ahead of where it is in the United States. We have, we have super apps, which uh, are basically everything in one. You can order anything you want um, mm-hmm. from a haircut to, to your food. And they also have all cashless payments, no credit card payments. Right. So the merchants are not paying two and a half percent fees. They're paying 10 or 15 cents. Yeah. So that may be the future in the United States with Amazon or Facebook or Google may end up as a big super app if the antitrust laws allow it mm-hmm. to where people will just go to Google and buy everything right. or Amazon and buy everything. And there'll be, there'll be a bank like they are in Asia and credit cards may go away. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly better to track um, sales taxes, right? If you can't hide, if it's all cashless, through digital, it's impossible to, to not pay your sales taxes. Right. Yeah. Well, Asia sort of, I always saw that like Asia is a very a bit of a, it's a very different market. The United States it's far more uh, packed. Um, and yeah, high density, very level, right. High, very high density, whereas the United States tends to be spread out and that makes it a lot more logistically challenging to do that sort of thing in the United States. But it's very interesting that international development could very well go the way of, of, of cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, um, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I just mentioned one brand I was kind of shocked to see. Um, I've been reading on your magazine about Waobao. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I looked it up yesterday and realized that I can order Waobao here in Las Vegas from DoorDash. They have no stores. Mm-hmm. I'm curious who makes it and who delivers it. They only have like five or six stores in the whole U.S. But if you look at the delivery points, it's massive. Right. So um, I think that is, uh, I think for something where you're just steaming frozen buns, it makes perfect sense. But if you're really cooking sophisticated food or complex food, it's probably not going to work. But right. you know, for that, I, I think that is definitely the death knell for a lot of strip malls. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they'll turn into community colleges or something, but um, but something's got to give because uh, all I can say is right now I've had, I have a home in Las Vegas. I drive around a very nice part of the Western part of Las Vegas. And there's so many strip malls. Mm. You wonder so many gas stations, so many CVS and Walgreens. <laughs> you, you wonder, do you really need all of these? Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we talk about the United States being over restauranted and it's certainly over retailed um by by a long margin especially given where retail sales are definitely going um and then you add into this uh a bunch of closed restaurants on top of it and uh yeah i mean the 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 retail market is 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 really challenging and you know i mean if the ghost kitchen thing goes anywhere in the united states and delivery is able to get sophisticated enough and profitable enough to work here then you could definitely see sort of a future in which a lot of these ancillary, smaller and mid-sized brands go away and just become virtual. Well, there, as you know, um, there's a lot of different dark kitchen models. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm involved in a dark kitchen model now, which I won't mention the name, but it's self-contained ecosystem. Chef-driven, the, the chef-driven restaurants uh, cook their own food. Mm-hmm. And on site, there's, there's uh, cars, branded cars with drivers with uniforms. So it's hundred percent self-contained. So mm. they're not involved with third party aggregators at all. Yeah. So the, the worry I have is third party aggregators because you know, reef kitchens and all these others, third party aggregators have really terrible customer service. If you look at brands that use them, I hate to say it, but the, the customer comments are 
not good, mm -hmm. you know, in, in general. So, I, and also, as you know this already, that the amount of money, the soft banks of this world, the amount of money they've pumped into uh, third-party delivery with a model that I don't think will ever make money. In Asia, these big third-party apps that are mega, mega apps or super apps, they're making lots of money, but not from delivery. They own the equivalent of Yelp. They own the equivalent of their own bank. So they, you know, the sum total of all of their digital platforms are making a lot of money, but mm -hmm. delivery itself, they're not making any money at all. Yeah. You know, so the U.S., there'll probably be more consolidation here. And uh, all the venture capital companies want to do is get out and get their money. Just like with WeWork, you know, mm -hmm. they were sitting on something 47 billion, now it's worth 2.5 billion. So mm -hmm. I think when DoorDash does their IPO, SoftBank will breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> but who knows what happens after that? Right. So this was fantastic. Thank you very much for joining uh, me this week on the podcast. No, it was a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Before we go today, I would again like to put in a plug for RB Daily, a podcast that compiles all of the day's most important restaurant news from the editors of Restaurant Business. Find us on restaurantbusinessonline.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which, as always, was edited by Kimberly Kazmarek. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You can find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, the podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening.